brought back a lot of uh, very powerful memories to hear John uh, sing this morning. John and I go back about a hundred years or more. <laughs> back to the uh, late 60s and 70s, and uh, we just had some great times together. John mentioned the, <coughs> pardon me, the concerts at uh, Frost Amphitheater. Actually, my memories are not so much of the grass that grows, but uh, the grass that uh, was smoked. Uh, you talk about passive inhalation. I, uh, <laughs> I remember uh, just uh, hundreds of kids gathered uh, in that amphitheater and uh, the smell of pot all over the place and, and kids there listening to the Lord, many of them hearing the gospel uh, in a way that they could grasp it for the first time. John's... Words and his spirit have always ministered to me, and and I know that he will uh, do so for you. I hope you can come tonight. John's not just a performer; he really performs for the honor and glory of Christ, and and he will en- he will enrich your lives as a result. Now, will you turn to First Kings eighteen, and uh, we will continue our our studies. Uh, of this uh, wonderful old uh, character, Elijah. Andy Warhol promised all of us 15 minutes of fame. Uh, Elijah received his moment of glory on top of Mount Carmel. As I mentioned uh, last week, everything that God was doing to Elijah and for Elijah found its consummation in this one moment. This was the most significant moment of his life. This was the event at which he turned an entire nation around. This was his consummating uh, moment, his defining moment. Um, Let's begin reading with uh, verse 1 of of chapter 18. Now it came about after many days that the word of the Lord came to Elijah in the third year, saying, Go show yourself to Ahab. And I will send rain on the face of the earth. Now, remember Elijah was in Zarephath, living with the widow and her child, when the word of the Lord came to him. And uh, when Elijah left Zarephath on his way to meet Ahab, he had, he had no idea what God would do. All he knew is that he was to present himself to Ahab and that it would soon rain. But as he made his way to this, uh, to this collision with, with Ahab, bits and pieces of a plan began to form in his mind. That's the way it is with God. You know, he doesn't give us the whole scenario at once. He's like a mother helping a child put a puzzle together. He, she doesn't hand him a thousand pieces at once and go off and leave him to, to put the puzzle together. She gives him one piece of the puzzle at a time. And uh, that's what God does with us. He presents us with one piece at a time. And as Elijah made his way off to meet uh, with Ahab, the plan began to form. The picture became much more clear. And by the time the two came together, Elijah knew what he was to do. And that's our assurance as well. God doesn't uh, lay out all of his purposes for us in the beginning. God's will is much better seen in, in retrospect than it is in prospect. However, we can know that when we have to know, we will know. And uh, in this case, when, when Elijah had to know what to do, he knew. 
And when he finally collided with uh, Ahab, uh, the plan was, was already formed. Let's uh, look at verse 17 in 1 Kings 18. It came about when Ahab saw Elijah that Ahab said to him, Is this you, you troubler of Israel? And uh, he said, I've not troubled Israel, but you and your father's uh, house have, because you have forsaken the commandments of the Lord, and you have followed the Baals. Idolatry always troubles a nation. Now then send and gather to me all Israel at Mount Carmel, together with 450 prophets of Baal, and 400 prophets of the Asherah who eat it at Jezebel's table. So Ahab sent a message among all the sons of Israel and brought the prophets together at, at Mount Carmel. We have no idea how he got the word out. There was some apparatus uh, intact by which the king's decrees could go out to all Israel. And uh, people began to gather from all over the land at Mount Carmel. must have taken a few days. Elijah probably spent the intervening time at Mount Carmel, perhaps in one of the limestone caves there at the foot of the mountain, waiting for the people to gather and praying for the unfolding of, of the purposes of God. It's always a good thing to pre-pray pre your pressure points. When you know things are about to happen that are very demanding, circumstances that, uh, that are, are frightening, that are dark and dangerous, then it's... That's the time to begin to pray, to ask God for the unfolding of his uh, plan. And I think that's probably what, what Elijah was doing. And eventually, the people gathered, and the great day came. Now, I want you to try to envision, if you can, what this uh, scene looked like. Uh, Carmel, uh, actually our word Carmel comes from two words. Carom, which is the word for vineyard, the old Semitic word for vineyard, and El which is the shorthand form of, uh, for God, Elohim. The mountain was probably named by the Canaanites. It was an ancient uh, uh, religious center. There were already pagan altars there when the altar to Yahweh was, was built on top of Mount Carmel. A lot of altars and, and, and worship places there. Uh, it's, a, it's a fairly prominent uh, little, little mountain. It's about 1,400 feet. stands about 1,400 feet above the surrounding uh, terrain. Uh, I want you to picture uh, Elijah standing on the highest point, waiting for the people to gather. If he looked off toward the west, he could see the Mediterranean Sea from that point and, and the Phoenician ships, the sails of the Phoenician ships out on, that, on the dark uh, blue of the Mediterranean Sea. Off to the north is Mount Hermon with the sun reflecting off of the, uh, uh, the snow fields on that, that mountain. If he looked off to the east, he could look down the plain of Esdraelon and through the morning mist. He could probably see the city of Jezreel, which was the summer palace uh, of Ahab. The summer, uh, Jezreel was the summer capital. He could see Ahab's uh, palace and he could see the, the, the monstrous uh, house of Baal that Jezebel had, had built there. People began to gather and make their way up the sides of that mountain and look for vantage points from which they could, could view the proceedings. Ahab must have made his appearance with all the pomp and ceremony due the king, surrounded by his uh, bodyguards and by his cabinet, by the 450 priests of Baal. It's significant that Jezebel was not there. She's conspicuous in her absence. Uh, and her priests. Uh, the priests of Asherah were not there as well. Once again, she had overruled the king. She simply uh, did, not, uh, did not turn up for this event. But Ahab, 
was there, and the 450 uh, prophets of, uh, uh, of Baal. I'm sure that, a, that, that Elijah had, uh, had friends in that crowd, but uh, they were few and, and far between. Most of the faces were, were hard. As far as they were concerned, Elijah was a dead man. It was just a matter of time before they would, they would take his uh, life. Elijah stood alone against a nation. Now, that's hard. That's difficult to stand alone. There's another old saint in church history. His name is Athanasius, who's become f- uh, famous for standing against all comers. He lived in the in the fourth century A.D. He lived at a time when heresy uh, was creeping into the church in a particularly dangerous form of heresy. It had to do with the person of Christ. There was a man named Arius that was teaching that Jesus was not really God; he was just God-like. And that heresy had swept through the church. That became orthodoxy within the church. But Athanasius, uh, from his study of the word, was convinced that Jesus was God. And the argument hinged around two, two words. Was Jesus homoousius? Was he like God or was he homoousius? Scholars like to say that this was an argument over an iota subscript, the, the, the smallest uh, letter in the Greek alphabet, our, our little letter I. Is he homoousius? Is he God? Or is he homoousius? Is he God-like? And the debate raged over those, uh, just that, that one little letter, but the debate was far more significant that one letter really had to do with the person of our Lord. And Athanasius stood against the entire nation for the truth that Jesus Christ was Lord indeed. He was God. And uh, at one point in his uh, in the debate, he was dragged before the emperor Constantine. And Constantine shouted in his face, Athanasius, you pertinacious old man, he said, don't you know you stand against the whole world? And Athanasius, uh, who was a, a frail a uh, small man pulled himself up to his full height, and he said, Then I, Athanasius, stand against the world. And uh, his name has come down to us, Athanasius Contramundum, Athanasius against the world. Now, uh, this is Elijah, Elijah Contramundum, Elijah against the world. He was all alone, but he had a secret. See? He, he, he knew the same secret that you and I know. He was not alone. He was not alone. He was living in the presence of the invisible, but the living God. He believed in the world of unseen realities. That's what faith is. You see, he's looking beyond the here and now and the seen to the unseen world of reality. And he knew that out there in that invisible world was a God who ruled, backed up by billions and trillions of angels and fiery chariots and horses. He knew he was not alone few weeks we're going to talk about another incident and in, uh, well, in this case it was Elisha's uh, experience. Elisha was Elijah's protege, was his disciple and he was in the city of Dothan and the city of Dothan was surrounded by the Syrian army. Elisha had been tipping off the Israeli king about the movements of the Syrian army and the Syrian king decided to take Elisha out so he surrounded the city of Dothan. Elisha looked over the, the walls of the city the next day. He was standing with his servant. The servant saw the Syrian army, and he panicked. And Elijah said, eh, don't worry about anything. There's more of us uh, than there are them. More with us than with them. Two men, Elisha and, and, his, and his servant, against the entire Syrian army. And 
And Elisha prayed, open his eyes, open his eyes. And he opened his eyes and he saw the legions of God, the billions and trillions of angels in their, in their chariots of fire surrounding the, uh, the city. Now I want you to understand, the same is true of you. He gives his angels charge over you. You're never alone, never alone. The song that we used to sing when I was a child, no, never alone, alone, no, never alone. He promised never to leave you, never to leave you alone. It doesn't matter how, how alone you feel. Perhaps you're facing some, uh, some real crisis in your life and no one stands with you. You're not alone. He has said, as the writer of Hebrews puts it, I will never leave you. I will never forsake you. He uses a double negative, which in English is not good grammar, but in Greek it's, it's the most expressive, powerful way to express a negative. He will not never leave you alone. He will not never forsake you. Therefore, the writer of Hebrews says, I can confidently say the Lord is my helper. I will not fear what man can do to me. So you should know that. You're not alone. Not to worry about Elijah. He was not, uh, he was not uh, alone either. Uh, so uh, now uh, the people had gathered. Verse uh, 21, Elijah came near to all the people. Uh, he wanted them all to, to see what was uh, going to transpire. Yogi Berra says you can observe a lot by watching. And uh, he, um, he wanted to be sure that all the people uh, were close enough so they could scrutinize uh, the proceedings. And he, he raises this uh, question in verse 21. Elijah's man, a few words, really only seven uh, statements throughout uh, this uh, day on Mount Carmel, at least seven that are reported to us. Elijah said, how long will you hesitate between two opinions? If the Lord is God, follow him. But if Baal, follow him. Now, let me say something about idolatry. Baal just means Lord, and that's all. It's, actually, it's used in the Old Testament for the word husband, used interchangeably with the word husband. It means a Lord or a master. What Elijah is saying is that there are only two options in life. You either serve God or you serve some other master. We were made to be mastered. No one is born free. Everyone has something that lords it over them. That's what we were made for. We're made to be subject or something or other. We're either subject to God and therefore fully free, or we're subject to some other God and in bondage to them. There are no other options. Bob Dylan says you've got to serve somebody. You'll either serve God or you'll serve the other idols. Now, in ancient times, idolatry was uh, a little more straightforward and easy to discern. Today, it's a, a bit more, more subtle. Idolatry is making God what is not God. Idolatry is given devotion and worship and affection and love to anything other than God. It could be any perfectly good thing. But if we center upon it, and it becomes for us uh, a God, it could be our uh, vocation, could be our educational pursuit at the moment. Could be our bodies, you know, the development of the of the body, beautiful through diets or through exercise plans. All of these things, perfectly good. But when we're obsessed with these things, when we're preoccupied with these things, when they become our reason for living, when they become the most significant things in our lives, when we center on them, when we think we can't do without them, when we have to have them, then they're they're idols. 
Paul uh, says, an, uh, I think, a very significant thing in 1 Corinthians 10 about our wanting things, having to have certain things other than God. The only thing we have to have is God. We don't have to have anything else. That's why David could say, the Lord is my shepherd. I shall not want. I don't have to have anything else. But uh, Paul refers to a time in, in Israel's experience when they had to have the food from Egypt. They, they were tired of manna. They were tired of God's provision. They were bored with the yucky stuff. They didn't want any more of it. They wanted something better. And they began to long for the, the pizza in, in Egypt to replace the manna that, that they got in, in, in the wilderness. And uh, Paul says to the, the people that were reading his letter, flee idolatry. Not interesting. Flee idolatry. What he's saying is that craving something other than what God provides, craving something other than God himself, is idolatry, see? Now, um, uh, what, what, what Elijah is saying is that we, we have to choose. We can't have a pantheon of gods. We can't have God and other things we, we center on. We can't mingle our gods. It's, either, it's an either-or situation. We're either going to have, have God or we're going to have... We're going to have idols. Now, the hurt of idolatry is not that uh, uh, that idols give us don't give us any pleasure, because quite frankly, they do, at least for the short run. Nor is the hurt in idolatry that uh, that it leaves us with uh, deep disappointment, because in, that's a very good thing. That's so much the better. The hurt in idolatry is that it woos our heart away from God. See, Jesus put it like this. You cannot serve two masters. He didn't say you shouldn't. He says you can't. Because you will love the one and hate the other, you will be devoted to one, you will despise the other. See, that's the problem with the, with the other gods. If we're devoted to, uh, to, to, to some other god, then it, 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 it loosens our... It lessens our love for God. It loosens our grip upon him. That's the problem. Now, let's go on to see what Elijah, how Elijah dealt with this issue. Verse 22, Elijah said to the people, I alone am left, a prophet of the Lord, but Baal's prophets are 450 men. So then he throws down the challenge. Let them give us two oxen. Let them choose one ox for themselves and cut it up and put it on the wood, but put no fire under it. And I will prepare the other ox and lay it on the wood, and, and I will not put fire under it. Then you call on the name of your God, and I'll call on the name of, of the Lord. And the God who answers by fire, he is God. And the people, people answered, that's a good idea. That's what my translation says. Uh, in, in, in Canaanite theology, Baal was the god that answered by fire. That's the way they thought of it. Uh, there's an ancient representation of Baal, a stele, on which he's, uh, he's presented. and He's shown there uh, treading over the, the waters and the subterranean springs. He was the god of rain and, 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 and uh, uh, the rivers. Uh, he was the god that brought fertility to the ground. And he's, he has a club in his hand, which symbolizes thunder. And in his other hand, he has a stylized uh, spear. It looks like a lightning bolt, which is exactly what it is. He's the one that hurls fire from the sky. He was the god that brought the storms. And 
He brought the wind and the rain across the Mediterranean that, that brought fertility to the soil. Now, of course, it was God who brought the storm, not Baal. God causes it to rain on the just and the unjust. But, but Baal was given the credit for, uh, for that. But, but God is also, our God is also a, a consuming fire. That's his calling card. He appeared to Moses in a fiery bush. He was present in Israel in the pillar of fire by night. He was represented in the temple by the everlasting fire, the fire that they never permitted to go out, that uh, had been ignited on the altar when the temple was built. And, and uh, our God, is that's his calling card. He's a God who answers by fire. So now the test is set up. Who is the God of God of fire? So uh, Elijah said to the prophets of Baal, verse 25, Choose one ox for yourselves and prepare it first for, for you are many, and call on the name of your God, but put no fire under it. Then they took the ox which was given them, and they prepared it, and called on the name of Baal from morning until noon, saying, O Baal, answer us. But there was no voice, and no answer. So they just leaped higher about the altar which, which they had made. You see, one of the problems with idolatry, with idolatry is that it really doesn't pay off. Any significance it gives us is short-lived. Any good feeling that we get from purchasing something. You know, we all have this, this idea of, you know, if we could just, just get this thing, whatever it is, the right house in the right neighborhood or the right vehicle you know, or the right clothes or we could take the right vacation or we could find the right uh, person, then, then we would be satisfied. But there's no payoff, no payoff. All the other, the other gods just leave us empty, uh, leave us with a sense of boredom and monotony and, and lack of, of real significance. The other gods don't, don't pay off. They don't answer. They don't respond. And it came about at noon that Elijah mocked them, began to heckle them a little bit, began to tweeze them, tease them. Elijah mocked them and said, call out with a loud voice. Maybe he's uh, busy. Maybe he's uh, gone aside on a journey. Maybe he's asleep and needs to be awakened. He ridicules them. That makes fun of them. Which is what the, the prophets were inclined to do with idolatry. It's interesting. They always poked fun at Israel's idols. One of the words, they made up whimsical names for them. One of the words that they used for idols is gilol. And most scholars think it means a little rolled up thing. And, and most scholars think that uh, it's, it's referring to, to little dumb balls. And you stop and think for a minute. Wait a minute. Here I am, an eternal being. Made in the image of God, created to live forever and to live in eternal fellowship with God. Satisfied by some car, made complete by some clothes, something I put on my body, something I spray on it or roll on it. I mean, is, this is going to complete me? Uh, come on, you've you got to be kidding. See, th th this, this is sort of the way that they, they, treat, they treat idols. Can we really think? That a man or woman made to live forever can ever be satisfied by, by anything in the here and now. No. Ecclesiastes says God has put eternity in our hearts. And that's why no transient, temporary thing will, will ever satisfy. I don't care what it is or how initially satisfying it is. In the end, it does not pay off. 
So they cried with a loud voice and cut themselves according to their custom with swords and lances until blood gushed out on them. And, you know, that's exactly what we do when we try to get these other gods to come through. We will sometimes wreck our health and inflict terrible injury to ourselves. We will burn the candle at both ends until we have a heart attack or we make ourselves sick. We will dehumanize ourselves. We will do anything to find satisfaction, but the gods never answer. They never come through. And uh, it came about when midday was passed after three hours of their efforts to appease the, uh, the Baal and to get a response. They raved until the time of the offering of the evening sacrifice, but there was no voice. And no one answered and no one paid attention. Then, verse 30, Elijah said to all the people, Come, come near. To me, that's so they would see that there was no trickery, he had nothing up his sleeve. No, the, 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 the prophets of Baal were notorious for their efforts to contrive effect. Elijah wanted them to see this was the real thing. When I was in college, I used to work at a camp in, in Texas called Camp Elhar. And uh, it was a kid camp, and we used to use an Indian theme, and the first night... The uh, camp was always started with a campfire, an Indian campfire, and we'd all dress up like Indians and gather around the around the, an altar that had been built on a, a point of land, at a little hill that extended uh, out a ways from the campground, and and uh, uh, we had a, a contraption that brought fire out of a tree. There was a great big cedar tree off to one side, and we had a stake driven in the middle of the of the altar and a wire that went from the stake up into the tree and we rigged up this little apparatus with a coat hanger and a big ball of of uh, uh, of uh, cloth of uh, a rag that had been soaked in kerosene and one of us would be up in the tree and the Indian chief down uh, by the fire would call on uh, the fire to come and and the idea was to ignite the thing and send it down this little trolley and poof you know and, it was all saturated in, in gasoline, and it would just go up in this grain. It was always impressive to the kids, but I always remember the time that uh, the fellow down at the bottom just called out and called out and called out, and nothing happened, and all you could hear was this guy scratching up there. <laughs> and finally, he says, ugh, match is wet. And uh, so so the uh, the fellow at the bottom just had to toss a match in the thing. Somehow it ruined the whole effect. But the, the, this is the kind of thing that Elijah wanted to uh, avoid. He wanted to... Uh, Wanted them to see that there was no chicanery, you know, no tomfoolery. He wasn't trying to pull anybody's leg. This was this was the real thing, and uh, the people gathered around him, and he repaired the altar of the Lord, which had been torn down. And Elijah took twelve stones, according to the number of the tribes of the sons of Jacob, to whom the word of the Lord had come, saying, "Israel shall be your your name." And with the stones he built an altar in the name of the Lord. He, he went around gathering up these large rocks that Jezebel's henchmen had torn, uh, that strewn around the top of the mountain that had been torn out of the altar. And reverently, he began to put them together and rebuild the altar, 12 stones to symbolize the unity of, of the nation of Israel, worshiping around one, one Lord. And uh, then he did an odd thing. Uh, he uh, made a trench around the altar, large enough to hold two measures of seed, that's about five gallons, dug a furrow around the base of the altar, about four or five inches uh, wide, 
and uh, he arranged the wood, cut the ox in pieces, laid it on the wood. And then he said, fill four pitchers of water and pour it on the burnt offering and on the wood. And he said, do it a second time. And then he said, do it a third time. And the water flowed around the altar, and he also filled the trench with water. And he had, had his helpers go down to the river Kishon, which is right at the base of the mountain, bring back pitchers of water, huge pitchers, and they poured it over the sacrifice until the the ox and the wood and the altar and the ground was, was soaked. Everything was drenched and water ran into the, the trench and, and filled it up with water. He wasn't trying to make things easy for God. And then it came about at the time of the offering of the evening sacrifice that Elijah the prophet, Elijah the prophet, in contrast to these other false prophets, came near and said, Oh, oh Lord, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Israel, today... Let it be known that you're God in Israel and that I am your servant and that I have done all these things at thy word. Answer me, O Lord, answer me, that this people may know that you, O Lord, are God and that you have turned their heart back again. You see what the issue is here? It is the reputation of God. Twice he, he prays that God's name would be hallowed in Israel, that his name would be made holy that his name would be special to people, that they would worship him and worship him alone. He is jealous for the honor of God. That's the issue. And uh, when we approach God in that way, uh, out of a sense of, of, out of a desire to see his name hallowed, he cannot resist our, our advances. You know, I, I must say I long for a heart like, like Elijah's. I, mostly I want my own honor. When my ministry is, you know, is troubled, I get worried. When my reputation is on the line, that's when I get nervous. I get outraged when people are saying, uh, saying un- unkind or, or untrue things about me. But what really ought to outrage us is not our own personal reputation. God, God can take care of that. We need to forget ourselves. The real concern we ought to have is God's honor and his reputation. Elijah was outraged that Yahweh's altars had been laying ruins. And uh, uh, the, the altars dedicated to Baal dotted the landscape. He was outraged at the ugly, uh, immoral, licentious rites of Baalism uh, had suppressed the beauty of holiness that ought to characterize God's people. See, what ought to outrage us today is not, what's, not that, that our name is at stake, but that God's name is at stake. And that's why Jesus taught us to pray. May your name be holy. May your name be special. May your kingdom come. May your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. See, that was Elijah's concern. That was his prayer. He was inflamed with jealousy for the honor of of God. And then, verse 38, the fire of the Lord fell and consumed the burnt offering and the wood and the stones and the dust and Licked up the water that was in the trench. God usually reigns in his power. He doesn't intervene in human affairs, affairs in this way. He does from time to time just to let people know that he is indeed alive. Uh, normally he works in quieter ways, as we'll, we'll see next uh, week. And that's still small voice. But in this case, he took off the gloves and he manifested himself in, in power. And the fire fell. He was indeed the God of fire. And when all the people saw it, they fell on their faces and they said, 
The Lord. He is God. The Lord. He is God. You see what happened? He turned that whole nation away. The next step was to do away with the... uh, with the 450 prophets of Baal, which they, uh, they did, they lived in a sterner age than we do. God's not asking us to take out the apostates today. He has uh, another way to, to deal with them. He does ask us to deal with falsity and, and apostasy in ourselves. That's why Paul uh, says in, in Colossians 3, put to death uh, malice and greed and and all these things that constitute idolatry in, in, in our lives, he, he calls, calls them by name. They're, they're idols that, that we worship. We ought to be very stern with ourselves. And we certainly should uh, put away uh, in our minds the, the, the false prophets of his age, the teachers that uh, John was singing about that, that don't teach us truth, that lead us astray, that would have us follow, follow the lie. But the main thing, the main message for us, is to get back to the place that we're willing to say with Israel, the Lord is God, not my career. The Lord is God, not my marriage. The Lord is God, not this man, not this woman. The Lord is God, not uh, the the L.L. Bean catalog. The Lord is God, not my new Beamer. The Lord is God, not my ambition, not my program in life, not my agenda. The Lord is God. See, that, uh, that's the bottom line. That's what everything boils down to. See, the problem with idolatry is that it dehumanizes us. It takes our hearts away from God. It makes us less human, less humane. And there's no end to how far we will, we will go. We'll destroy our health. We'll destroy our family. We'll destroy our most intimate friendships in order to get what we want. The idols eventually will master us and and consume us, even good things, if they lord, uh, if they lord it over us, if they master us, will cause us to do irrational, sinful, ungodly, wicked things. We'll start cutting corners, and, and uh, uh, we will do things that we never thought we uh, we would do or or could do. The point, important issue is who gets the incense in your life. Elijah's question. Two options, follow God, follow Baal. Forces the question on us, to what are we devoted? What are we preoccupied with? What is it that you and I center on? Do you want to know what it is? Do you want to know what, what our idols are? That Jesus put it like this. Your, where your treasure is, is where your mind will be. He uses the word heart, but in Greek thought, the heart is the mind. Where your treasure is, that's where your heart, your mind will be. What do you think about all the time? Someone told me once that high school kids uh, think about sex uh, every uh, four minutes on the average. High school boys, excuse me, think about sex every four minutes. That's why girls usually do better in school than boys do, I'm sure. But that's a major preoccupation with it, and maybe a major preoccupation with you. What, What do you think about the first thing you get up in the morning? What are your reveries through the day? What are you preoccupied with at, at night b- before you, you go to bed? What, what, what am I preoccupied with? What do I read about? What do I think about? What do I talk about? What does my mind go to when it shifts into, into neutral? Where our heart is, that's our treasure. See? That's how we know what our, what our idols are. 
Now the question is, how can we deal with our idols? How can we trash them, get them out of our lives? Well, I haven't personally found much. Uh, it does very much good to just toss them out because uh, they come back with seven more worse than, than they are. There's only one way. Remember how Jesus put it? No man can serve, no woman can serve two masters. Either he'll love the one or he'll hate the other. He'll be devoted to one or he will despise the other. The only thing that loosens our grip on idols is to intensify our love for Christ. That's what lessens our love for for other gods. There isn't any other way. We can't just distract ourselves. We have to focus on God. As Jesus put it in in an enigmatic way that he had of speaking, if if the eye is single, focused is the word, if the eye is focused, then the whole body will be full of light. But if the eye is evil, if it's not focused on God, how great is that darkness? So, so the secret is to, is to focus on God. Uh, seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these other things will be added to you. Present your bodies a living sacrifice, wholly acceptable unto God, which is a reasonable act of service. And all these other things will be added to you. See? The main thing is to keep the main thing, the main thing, and the main thing is to focus on God, to get to know him, to intensify your love for him. That's the only thing that will loosen the grip that idolatry has on us. And so I leave you with... Uh, with John's final word, you read all the way through his uh, little book in First John, and, and one of the major themes in that book is, is, is the love of God, his love for us, and our love for him. And the last word, the bottom line of his book, is little children, keep yourself from idols. Let's pray. Father, we, uh, we just have to ask ourselves, who are we kidding? We, we all know that we, we struggle with other idols. We all have uh, these, these uh, gleaming gods that, uh, that appeal to us so strongly. Mm-hmm. And we, uh, we long to rid ourselves of them. We know that the end result is, is a diminished quality of life and the emptiness that nothing will satisfy. And yet we cling to them. And so we, we ask that you would in, continue to call us into fellowship with you. You tug at our hearts and keep asking us to seek your face. Keep longing for our worship. Our hearts respond to that. And give all of us a heart of devotion and adoration and, and love for you. We do pray that we would keep ourselves from idols. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen.